Yes, well now tonight we come to lesson 15 in the study of the great doctrines of the Bible or the doctrinal structure of the Bible. And uh, we're just beginning the new subject, Christ the Mediator. <clears throat> Christ the Mediator. And at the end of lesson 14, we just read through the references. We didn't look up the verses or discuss them. The verses in the Old Testament dealing with the Old Testament prophecies of the coming of the Messiah. And I didn't mention it last time, so I very much want to, uh, this time, I don't think I did anyway last time, but I'll repeat it anyway if I did, and that is that those references will not be on the examination. The, now what I'm talking about is not what I'm going to give you tonight, but what I gave you last time. The Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah, that list that I read to you simply for the sake of completion and for completeness, uh, that list will not be on the exam, if you'll notice that. Now, in coming to study Christ the, uh, the Mediator, we do want to remember where we are in our total study. And we are studying concerning God and man, or God's dealing with man. And so far, we have looked at the covenant of works, the fall, the covenant of grace, and the unity of the covenant of grace. And the next subject under this same heading of God's dealing with man is Christ the mediator. Now, so we won't get confused. I don't care if you mark it the way I mark it or not. But the way I marked it is, is this. Um, under the subject, God and man, God's dealing with man, A is the covenant of works, B the fall, C the covenant of grace, D the unity of the covenant of grace, and now tonight, E, uh, Christ the mediator. Now, I thought I would do something that I haven't done before, and that's rather read a rather extended section from the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, this is chapter 8 in Christ the Mediator. And of course you'll remember that we're following the general outline of the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms. I've read you quite a bit of it <clears throat> as we've come along, but I've never read you a whole chapter as I remember. Maybe I did, but I don't think I did. But I thought I would tonight, because even though it goes beyond our study tonight, and in fact uh, a great deal beyond it, yet it is such a complete and just plain beautiful statement of Christ the Mediator that I thought it would be worthwhile to read the whole chapter. And so I'll do that uh, at this time. This is chapter 8, the Westminster Confession of Faith of Christ the Mediator. Section 1. It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did, from all eternity, give a people to be his seed, and to be to by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Section 2. 
the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very an eternal God, of one substance, and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common affirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Section 3. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of a mediator and surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who put all power and judgment into his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. Section 4. This office the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which, that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it, endured most grievous torments immediately in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died, was buried and remained under the power of death, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which also he ascended into heaven, and there sitteth on the right hand of his Father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Section 5. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal Spirit once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of his Father, and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Section 6. Although the work of redemption was not actually wrought by Christ till after his incarnation, Yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefits thereof were communicated unto the elect in all ages successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed of a woman which should bruise the serpent's head, and the lamb slain from the beginning of the world, being yesterday and today the same and forever. Section 7. Christ in the work of mediation acteth according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometime in scripture attributed to the person uh, denominated by the other nature. Section 8. To, though, to all those for whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, and revealing unto them in and by the word 
the mysteries of salvation, effectually persuading them by his spirit to believe and obey, and governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most constant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation. And that's the end of chapter 8 in the Westminster Confession of Faith in Christ the Mediator. Now, as I said, we went considerably here, uh, considerably beyond where we will study tonight. Now, so that we'll understand where we're going and be able to look ahead a little bit, tonight we will look at Christ the Mediator, his person. I'm not sure how long that'll take. Tonight, Christ the Mediator, his person. Then we'll continue Christ's work as mediator, as his work as prophet, priest, and king. And then thirdly, Christ's humiliation and exaltation. This, of course, will take a, a good number of lectures before we get done uh, this area. And then following that, however, we will then go on and consider salvation and the results of salvation. And that will take as many, many lectures indeed just so you can look ahead a bit and see the direction we're going in. Now tonight, therefore, the subject, Christ the Mediator, his person, the person of Christ the Mediator. Now, first of all, we ought to realize that the Scripture makes very, very plain the mediatorial work of Christ. And in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul writes there, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, the God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Very important verse, really. Now you will notice here that it says that there is only one mediator <clears throat> between God and man that this one mediator is the man Christ Jesus. Calls him the man Christ Jesus, very carefully. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that one mediator is the man Christ Jesus. In other words, this verse says two things. It says there is a mediator between God and man, who is the man Christ Jesus. But it also says the negative, and that is there are not many other possible mediators. Jesus Christ is the only mediator. So it says the negative and the positive. There is a negative statement here. There is only one. It is Christ Jesus. But there is the positive. He is the mediator. Christ Jesus is the only possible intercessor between God, the Father, and man. That's what this verse would stress. Now, in the longer catechism, in question 36, we read this. Who is the mediator of the covenant of grace? Answer. The only mediator of the covenant of grace is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being eternal son of, the eternal Son of God, I beg your pardon, it's a definite article there, who being the eternal Son of God, of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time became man, and so was and continues to be God and man, in two entire distinct natures, 
in two entire distinct natures and one person forever. And then one other longer catechism question and answer. Why was our mediator called Jesus? Answer. Our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. Now here we have a statement, therefore, there is only one mediator, but there is a mediator between God and man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. Now we pass on uh, to our specific study tonight. The question of the person of Christ. Who is this Christ Jesus? Who is he, this mediator between God and man? Now, you'll remember, those of you who have been following this series, <clears throat> that in Lessons 3 and 4, we spent four hours considering the Trinity. And uh, we saw in our study of the Trinity, among other things, the reality of the deity of Christ, the two d true deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. And we went back and we saw that this was true, not just from his incarnation, nor even just from creation, but that the Bible insists in the reality of the Trinity before the creation of the world. You remember we saw this as no small thing at all, because it's at this particular point that the fact that God is a personal God is emphasized in Scripture with such force. So important to us in the answering of questions of any day, but perhaps especially the questions raised by our own day. A truly personal God in the high sense of personality of Trinity before the creation of anything else. So that among the persons of the Trinity before the creation of anything else... There is love and communication. Now, therefore, in bringing this into the direction of tonight's study, we saw in our study of the Trinity in lectures 3 and 4 that the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ is truly God. Equally God, as much so as God the Father. We also saw in that study... Uh, the second person of the Trinity was God before he was born to Mary, as I've just said a few moments ago. And that he was God while he was on the earth, and that he's God now. This does not change. We also saw in that study that the second person of the Trinity, we know as Jesus Christ since the Incarnation, the second person of the Tr Trinity is distinct from the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And from the third person, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Remember, we spent a good bit of time in considering the Trinity that it isn't three gods. Yet, nevertheless, it is not only three modes of expression either. We use the illustration, it's not like um, three Greek act or one Greek actor using three masks. It's not three modes of expression. But the Bible insists there's three true persons before the creation of the world in communication with each other, love with each other, uh, loving each other, and so on. So now we have said, considering the second person of the Trinity, he's distinct from the first person of the Trinity, the Father. He's distinct from the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And that he is designated in the Bible as the second person of the Trinity, as God the Son. And in that study of the Trinity, we emphasize something of this nature, 
that it's because Jesus is God that we can be sure that after we take him as Savior, uh, that we will be in heaven. He is God. And the Bible insists, insists, as we saw back there in that study three and four, lecture three and four, that Christ is God, and the Bible would say the negative too, if Christ is not God, he cannot be our Savior, and we have no hope. Now, the longer catechism expresses it like this, in the longer catechism number 38. Number 38. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? Answer. And these are very well-chosen words, I would suggest to you, as you listen to it. Answer. It was requisite that the mediator should be God, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death, give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. I want you to notice two points here uh, with real force, if you will. The why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? And the second point raised was give worth and efficacy to his sufferings. Now, in other words, the emphasis here is just exactly where the scripture puts it, of course, but more than that, where it is tremendously important to have it placed in 20th century intellectual discussion. And that is to understand that it is because Jesus Christ is truly God, it's because this is true, that his suffering upon the cross had infinite value. And this is tremendously important, of course, because our own sins are infinitely uh, a matter of guilt before God because we have sinned against an infinite God and we have this chasm before our feet and our individual sin brings a guilt before God who is there who is truly holy and truly has a character and the great question can be what would fill up this this hole and the scriptural answer is of course and has, as I say has real importance in intellectual consideration today uh, that uh, nothing could fill up this hole, even for myself. And then you take the one man and then you multiply it by all those who will ever be Christians or ever have been Christians and you have a sense of uh, the tremendous problem of what would meet the guilt of uh, this uh, total addition of the sins of all those who have ever been Christian or ever will be Christian. And the scriptural answer at this particular place is, is really a very exciting one and a wonderful one. And that is because Jesus truly is God, therefore uh, his work has infinite value. Now, the next thing to notice, the next point was, and to satisfy God's justice. And here you have the sense of his substitution, the substitutionary work of Christ. But why is the substitutionary work of Christ uh, how can it meet the need? And the answer is, coming back to the previous point, because being God, he is truly infinite. This, you see, is, is not something to be thought of in quotation marks religious ter terminology, but it must be faced in its overall structure. 
and with real force, the question that can be raised. I don't know how many times sitting here in this room in the past I've had some Jewish person who's lost all their friends in the German concentration camps, all their family, and uh, they ask the question, what can that Jew hanging on the cross 2,000 years ago mean more than my father, my mother, my cousins, my family who died in the concentration camps under Hitler? And it's a very fine question. And for anyone who does not have a... a put an emphasis on the fact that Jesus is really God, in a real way it is an unanswerable question. But once we see that Jesus truly is God and is infinite, then his death on the cross, of course, means an entirely different thing. Entirely different thing. So now we have, we've come, and I'm not going to spend more time on this tonight, anyone who's interested in pursuing the biblical emphasis that Jesus is truly God, true deity, has been a the personality we know as Jesus Christ has been a member of the Trinity since before the creation of the world. You'd be sure to go back and listen to lessons three, lectures three and four on the Trinity. And with this now we have come, Jesus is God. That's the first emphasis concerning his person. And it's necessary that he be God. Otherwise, what the work he did on the cross would lack the value that it needs in the infinite uh, need that exists, in the light of our guilt before an infinite God. However, I feel too often that those of us who are evangelical, or whatever name we want to apply to Bible-believing Christians today, tend to stop at this particular place. And there's a reason for this, of course, because men have brought humanism into the church and have put such emphasis on, on getting rid of the concept of Jesus as God that those of us who love the Bible and love its teaching tend to, put, to lean against this and put a great deal of emphasis on the fact that Jesus is God. And of course we can't put too much on this, as I've just said. It's impossible to put too much emphasis on the biblical thrust that Jesus truly is God, a member of the Trinity, prior to the creation even of the world. And that this is necessary, not just as against some orthodox creed, but it's necessary if there's to be any answer as to the sufficient and unique value of the work of Christ as he died on the cross. So I'm not minimizing that. It's quite contrary to this. I would emphasize it, and if I thought it was ne necessary, I'd sit for the whole two hours and emphasize it. But now I'm saying something else. I'm saying that though it's absolutely necessary to emphasize this, we mustn't stop there. We must understand that it's equally necessary to emphasize that Jesus is also truly man. Truly man. And so what I just read to you was question number 38 in the answer in the longer catechism. Now I'll read you question 39 in the answer in the longer catechism. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, and have fellow feeling in our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness onto the throne of grace. In other words, the Westminster divines meeting at the, uh, from the, the Westminster 
assembly put equal emphasis on the fact that indeed Jesus is God, but also Jesus is truly man. And uh, being surrounded with the humanism of our own day, this may not seem so startling, but it is intriguing that when we think of the early church that uh, to realize that a great number of the heresies arose in the early church was not a denial of the true deity of Christ, but a denial of the true humanity of Christ. So in our generation, the 20th century heresies which surround us uh, tend to deny the true deity of Christ. But in the early church, the common heresy was the denial of his true humanity. Now from the biblical viewpoint and from the, um, from the viewpoint of God and the viewpoint of Jesus Christ himself, we must realize it is more startling to think of Jesus being truly a man than to think of him being truly God. Uh, at this place, we need to unwind from our 20th century mentality, in a sense. We need to unwind from the humanistic view that uh, lays such hold on us in our generation and to, to think of it for a moment from the other side. Think of it from the side, even if we're not a Christian, think of it from the side, well, if God is there and if there is a true Trinity and Jesus Christ has been God forever, then it's nothing surprising that Jesus would be God because he's always been God. But it's utterly amazing that the infinite God would become man. This is breathtaking. So from the biblical viewpoint, from the biblical viewpoint, the amazing thing and the chief emphasis does not need to be placed upon the fact that he's truly God because he's always been God. The chief emphasis and the most amazing thing comes on the emphasis of his true humanity. And if we all, just as I say, get unwound from our 20th century mentality and humanistic backgrounds today, we will recognize that if God really is there and if he, there is a trinity, and if Jesus Christ is the second person of the trinity, the most amazing thing is this, it's not the other at all. Now, this is the biblical emphasis. The biblical emphasis is not that it's wonderful that he's God, because he's always been God. What's absolutely amazing is that he's, he's going to be man as well as God. And in the early church, the heresies flowed in this more natural direction, maintaining his deity, but explaining away his true humanity. We have turned it right over because we're humanists today and our whole presupposition is based on humanist mentality. And therefore, we have turned over and we can easily accept he's a man, but we tend to explain away his true divinity. Now, tonight, therefore, uh, quite contrary to what uh, we possibly would usually do, I want to spend a lot of time on the biblical insistence of his true humanity. But having said this, remember that in lessons three and four, we have, also, we have already spent a great deal of time in emphasizing his true divinity. Now, in Matthew 4.2, and I have these listed not in uh, logical order, but simply uh, beginning at the beginning of Matthew and running through so we can find the references, the greatest ease. Matthew 4.2. Uh, Brad, would you look at the machine from time to time and make sure the tape is... Uh
it's not running out, because we have to tell the moment it runs out, of course. So we can change the reel tonight. Matthew 4, 2. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a-hungered. So the Bible here emphasizes Jesus indeed is a true man, and Jesus grew hungry. In Matthew 8.24, Matthew 8.24, And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, inasmuch that the ship was covered with waves, but he was asleep. And so Jesus here is a true man, he sleeps. Matthew 26.38, Matthew 26:38. And this is a very important verse actually. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry here and watch with me. Then said he, My soul is exceeding sorrowful. And Jesus here is speaking and what he says is that he has a true soul as well as a true body. In other words, that Jesus is, has a true human nature with a true soul as well as a body. It's not just that uh, Jesus, uh, or the second person of the Trinity, inhabited a body, and that the second person of the Trinity became to that body what the human soul is to the normal man. That is not the scriptural emphasis. The scriptural emphasis is a, a, total, a total human nature, uh, with the with a body and a soul. In Luke one thirty two, Luke one thirty two, and he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. The throne of his father David. So we have a natural line of descent laid out in the Bible uh, on the side uh, of his humanity. Back to David, back to Abraham, back to Adam. In Luke 2, 40 and 52, we have this intriguing emphasis that Jesus, as a true man, uh, grew physically and mentally in 240. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So the child grew, but not just physically, but you filled with wisdom. And in 52, verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. So you have an emphasis here on his growing, uh, both physically and mentally. In Luke 22:44, Luke 22:44, and he being in agony prayed more earnestly, and etc. So here we find Jesus, uh, Jesus, the true man, suffering agony. And then, of course, Luke 23, 46, the culmination of the thing. Though we'll go on and look at some more verses. But Luke 23, 46, if we were going through it logically, the culmination. Uh, 
And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. So here, the culmination of this is that Jesus died. He died. Uh, in Luke 24, 30, 39, in regard, however, to the time after his death, uh, we find here, And behold, my hands and my feet, that is, I myself handle me and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. So he told them to touch him, and he ate. The emphasis in the scripture that after his death and resurrection, he had a true, uh, a true body. In John, turning to the Gospel of John, John 8, 40, John 8, 40, we have Jesus' own testimony at this particular point. Uh, and now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth. So here the emphasis, Jesus calls himself a man. In John 11, 33 and 35, John 11, 33 and 35, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled, and he said, Where have ye laid me? He laid him, and so forth. And then we have the emphasis in the 35th verse, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The emphasis here that Jesus indeed did what we know in the presence of death. He wept. In John 19:28 John 19:28 And after this Jesus knowing that all things were accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled saith I thirst the emphasis here in the uh, direction we're studying tonight is on the fact that uh, he grew thirsty, suffered thirst. John 19.34, what ought to be quite obvious, uh, from the emphasis of Scripture, they pierced his side and came out blood and water. The emphasis that he's not some sort of a phantom, he had true blood in his veins. He had true blood in his veins. In Acts 2, in Acts 2, moving on beyond the Gospels, Acts 2.22 Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you. And so on. After his death, uh, we find that Peter preaching in the day of Pentecost uh, doesn't hesitate at all with a tremendous emphasis given in the book of Acts on the deity of Christ also to say Jesus of Nazareth, a man, a man. Uh, in Romans 5:15, we have... In the writings of Paul, Romans 5.15, very interesting section again, though we can only just look at it in passing. Um, we find that in this section, Jesus is parallel to, uh, to Adam as a man. Jesus is parallel to Adam as a man. 
but not as the offense, so also as the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, uh, hath abounded unto many. He's called a man here, and he's parallel in the emphasis on his true humanity, uh, even with Adam. In Galatians 4.4, 4, Galatians 4.4, 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now, we're coming down into uh, a bit more intense consideration because here we find that the two concepts are brought together. God sent forth his Son and uh, this emphasis on the eternal eternity of the Son. God sent forth his Son, but what? Made of a woman, made under the law. So at this particular place, you have the two things brought together. Uh, God sent forth his Son which in the scriptural framework certainly must understood uh, to be on this whole concept of the eternity. God sent forth his son, yet it can be said, made of a woman. Made of a woman. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2.5, well, we've already read this one, but for the sake of completeness of the list, 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The emphasis on his mediatorship is indeed uh, placed uh, an emphasis also on his true humanity. And also in 1 Timothy, uh, the third chapter and the 16th verse, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested. King James is manifest, but God was manifested in the flesh. And here you see, you, you, you come with like a great crash, a car moving at high speed into a, a set wall. God was manifested in the flesh. The, the emphasis on the, hum, the deity and the humanity at one time. God was manifested in the flesh. Here we have this emphasis again, bringing the two things specifically together. His divinity and his humanity. Now, it's a very important thing to understand the, uh, the reality, the reality of the humanity of Christ. The reality of the humanity of Christ. And first of all, it is necessary that he become truly a man, the second Adam, that he might die for us. This would be the first thing to notice. That uh, if he was going to uh, be united to the human race, if he was to die for us, he had to be truly a man. So the one who has been eternally God becomes truly a man. So that there would be meaning in his deaths. Because the Bible very much pictures, you see, that his death is not just a theological proposition, nor even a philosophic statement. His death, neither is his death, according to the scripture, merely a piece of theater. There's something real that happens here on the cross. It's not just a piece of theater. It's not just drama. It isn't, uh, it isn't just a, uh, a symbol of existential experience. It's none of these things from the scriptural viewpoint. But something real happens here. Something historic happens here. Something space-time-wise happens here. Something happens here 
the content, content of which can be considered uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a scientific framework, if we wish to speak of it that way, a historic framework. The Bible doesn't present something to us here in which we must change gears and shift over into thinking of a, in a religious framework, a non-historic framework, or a non-scientific framework. The Bible insists that what happened on the cross was in space, in time, in history. Uh, it was uh, an event that has content, and it's an event in which Jesus really does die on the cross uh, for men. And as such, this one who has eternally been God, if he is to die, he must indeed uh, become truly man, if this is to have some meaningfulness. And so the emphasis on his true humanity falls at this place. As we saw in Romans 5, he is the second Adam, and he dies on the cross. Another emphasis in the scripture of the necessity, very much the necessity of his true humanity, and then after we see the necessity of it, for those of us who are Christians, a real meaningfulness. Uh, in Hebrews 2, 16 through 18. Hebrews 2, 16 through 18. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So there's a contrast here. He didn't take on him the nature of angels. But what he did is to take on the, the nature of man. And then the 17th verse, Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So here's the emphasis I've already given you. The, the emphasis that if he's going to uh, become the high priest, if he's going to die on the cross as a substitute, in the stead and place of his people, he must be, be a true man. But it doesn't end there, because the 18th verse says, "For in that he himself, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted." In the fourth chapter, the 15th verse, "For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are." Get without sin. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. Why can we come boldly under the throne of grace? Well, because not only in being truly man can he die from his people, but also in being truly man he can comprehend his people. That's the emphasis. And consequently, we can come to him with, with boldness. Uh, he is, this is not a piece of theater that has happened here, you see. It is not uh, the shadow man, uh, X, in the last year of Marambad. It isn't this. It isn't a piece of theater where we stand and we watch actors on, a screen, on, the, on, a, on the boards, and as we watch the actors on the boards, the script is already predetermined, so you know what's going to happen. It isn't that way. There's something real happening here. It's in history. It's in space and time. Before that, it hadn't happened. After this, it has happened. But there's a reality here. There's a reality of it here. 
And as he dies on the cross in substitution, now he isn't just God who is so far off that he cannot understand. But here he is, or cannot understand on the basis of experience, let me say. But here he is, and he has suffered these things. He has been tempted in all points like as we have, without sin. So when uh, a child comes, and an older person comes and says, who can understand me? And there's the cry, who can understand me? Uh, the answer is, well, Christ can understand because he's walked the same road. Now, I think I'd better back up and clarify something that it seems to me I didn't say very clearly. And that is, there must be a distinction made here between God understanding all things as God is in infinity and uh, the experiential knowledge. And God is God being infinite. He understands, he knows all things, as we've emphasized in considering the infinity of God. He not only knows all things that are is, he knows all things that could be and never will be. He truly understands, he is infinite. He understands, he knows all things as no man can know all things. But nevertheless, the scriptural emphasis is, is wonderful in its assurance. And that is, not only does he know all things as infinite God, but now the Bible says that Jesus, being a true man, taking on true human nature, in order to die upon the cross, it also carries this with it, that now Jesus Christ experientially understands the struggles, the battles, the sorrows of life. Therefore, we can come to him boldly and with a sense of understanding and joy. Now, the third thing, I would emphasize that the true humanity of Christ here and the importance of it would be, uh, I would begin with uh, Longer Catechism question 42. Longer Catechism question 42. Why was our mediator called Christ? Do you remember we already looked at 41? Why was our mediator called Jesus? Answer. Our mediator was called Jesus because he saveth his people from their sins. Question 42, which is the one we're dealing with now. Why was our mediator called Christ? Answer. Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart and fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the office of prophet, priest, and king to his church in the estate both of humiliation and exaltation. Now, the word, uh, the word Christ simply means anointed. The word Christ simply means anointed. That's what the word means. Uh, Jesus comes from the word to save. But the, uh, the word Jesus comes from the word to save. But mediator, the word, uh, media, I beg your pardon, the word Christ comes from the, the word uh, anoint. And how is Jesus anointed? Well, the Catechism says quite properly, he was anointed with the Holy Ghost. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, just to say in passing, in case anyone is confused at all, that the, uh, the Old English, of course, makes no differentiation between ghost and spirit. So when the Bible speaks of the Holy Ghost, it's synonym, a total synonym for the word Holy Spirit. In our own generation, I suppose it's always better to say Holy Spirit. Men understand better. But to them, it was no confusion, and they were translating exactly the same word, we find, when they translate Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit. 
But you notice what it said there. It says he was anointed of the Holy Spirit. Now, who is the Holy Spirit? Well, in our study of the Trinity, we've seen that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. And if you're listening careful, carefully, uh, this is something that will suddenly bring us uh, to a total stop, in a sense. This is a brand new door that opens. Jesus Christ, eternally the second person of the Trinity, came to the earth, was truly a man now, as well as truly God, and we have just read something which is which really is startling if we're thinking, and that is he did his work, however, not as God, but as anointed by the third person of the Trinity. Now what have we been studying? We've been studying his true humanity. It's not a piece of theater, is what I've been saying. He really can understand. And people often say to me, but how, how can this any, mean anything to me? What's use talking to me about uh, after I'm a Christian and accepted Christ as Savior, following the example of Christ? What are you talking about? He's God. But that isn't the scriptural emphasis here. He is truly God. But the scriptural emphasis here is he's truly man. And he actually, as he did his work upon the earth, he did it under the anointing and the empowering of the third person of the Trinity, who is the Holy Spirit. And you feel immediately that suddenly you have a different situation. Our closeness is much greater now. When I look at what he does, he doesn't do it in the empowering of the of deity in, his, uh, in the life he lived, for example. But he does his work uh, and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then this brings him much closer to me. The emphasis on a uh, one that is can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities comes into focus, as it were, as though you're lining up uh, two, uh, the two prisms and a pair of binoculars. Suddenly it's in line, it's sharp. Uh, if that's true, if it's true that he lived the life he lived not as God, though he is God, but as truly man, in the anointing of the Holy Spirit, obviously it brings us, it brings the thing into perspective. So he does understand, but not only that he understands, and then of course would come the next thing, though this isn't the place to study this, then it throws a greater understanding of obligation upon me if I also have the Holy Spirit. It's a greater calling. Now, at this particular place, I want to uh, take uh, some time and consider, I want to take some time and consider the fact of the emphasis uh, in the Bible of the fact that Jesus truly uh, was anointed of the Holy Spirit and did his work under the, uh, or in that capacity. First of all, some prophecies. Now remember, please don't get lost. I'm always afraid when I bring in uh, greater detail that somebody will just get plain lost. What we're studying is Jesus Christ is a true man. And one could take this study we're taking now of the relationship of Jesus Christ uh, and the Holy Spirit uh, and carry it in a couple directions. One, the direction which would be most profitable is the one I just mentioned, surely, and that is the uh, the understanding of what it throws upon me uh, in comprehension that if I have the Holy Spirit and he lived in committing himself to the Holy Spirit, what it means to me practically. But uh, that isn't the chief emphasis I want to give it tonight. 
the chief emphasis, I, I just want us to see how, what an, what, how sharp this brings the realization that Jesus Christ, who has been eternally God after the incarnation, truly is a man. Because now we see him and doing what he does as anointed by the Holy Spirit. And you remember, this is not some exotic thing uh, brought in out of thin air. Uh, as we'll see, the scripture emphasizes it. But for those of you who may be uh, very keen in following the catechisms, let me read it again. 42, our mediator larger catechism. Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure and so set apart. Uh, the Westminster Divines are pointing out that it was by the anointing of the Holy Spirit that he was set apart. But not only set apart, but fully furnished with all authority and ability. What enabled him to be furnished with authority and furnished with ability? To do what? To execute the office of prophet, priest, and king to his church. What furnished him with this authority and ability? And very properly, from a scripture viewpoint, the answer is anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. So it's not something that is exotic at all. It's a thing that has come down to us uh, with real understanding uh, in the catechism. In Isaiah... Isaiah 11:2, a prophecy. I'm not sure how long I should take it this night, but I think I better give you the whole study to feel the force of it. I think it's worth uh, 15, 20 minutes or a half hour. Isaiah 11:2, and this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, 700 years before Jesus came. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and so, and so, and so. So the emphasis here is, first of all, uh, the reality uh, in prophecy that the Holy Spirit would rest upon him. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In 42.1, Isaiah 42.1, the same prophetic emphasis Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment into truth. In Matthew 12.20 applies this to Christ. So what we have here is again... I put my spirit upon him. In 61, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. And if you'll look at sometime, just jot it down in your notes, if you're taking note, Luke 4, 16 through 21, you'll find Jesus appropriates this passage as applying to himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me. To do what? To preach good tidings to the meek, etc., etc., etc. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach, and so on. Exactly the same emphasis, of course, as we found in the Catechism. Uh, now then, turning to the New Testament, in Matthew 1.20, Matthew 1.20, and again, 
I have arranged these not logically, but in uh, merely beginning at the beginning of Matthew and going on for ease of finding them. Matthew 1.20 And while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost. So the first thing is, it says, the act of conception uh, took place through the work of the Spirit. And then 3.11 uh, we find uh, this very, very important word from John the Baptist. Now, we usually say that John the Baptist introduced Jesus Christ with the words, Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. And that's perfectly true. He did. And this points back to Jesus being the fulfilling of the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament. Uh, but... We should never forget that while John the Baptist did introduce Jesus as the Lamb of God, there was a second note in his introduction, and that's found here, 3.11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. This is John the Baptizer speaking. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. So here John the Baptist in, in uh, introducing Jesus, introduces him as the Lamb of God. This is perfectly right. But he introduces him as something else. He introduces him as the one who shall baptize with the Holy Spirit. And then in John three sixteen and 17, this is his baptism. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were open. Uh, unto him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him and lo a voice from heaven saying this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased one of the passages that shows so clearly uh, the trinity but uh, notice that the spirit here comes upon him just exactly what Isaiah said would take place what the catechism said did take place here we find the Holy Spirit coming upon him and most of you will realize, I'm sure, that the original text never had any chapter or verse divisions in it. So you can't look for logical divisions necessarily from the chapter divisions. And this is one of those places, for it just flows right on. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So as soon as he is, uh, as the Holy Spirit comes upon him, the Holy Spirit leads him into the wilderness. So now we find Jesus going on his way. Jesus going on his way. What? Led of the third person of the Trinity. Now remember, in tonight's study, our chief thought here is the true humanity of Christ. And what an emphasis this puts in it. Jesus is, is uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and we watch him now walking out into his ministry. Usually this is the place we agree where his public ministry began. And he walks out into his public ministry being led by the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 12, Matthew 12, 17 through 20, Matthew 12, 17 through 21, I'm sorry, um, there's this passage we have uh, we looked at. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42, 1 and on. And uh, we're reading now Matthew 12:17, That it might be fulfilled, 
which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, you see, it's just what we've read, Behold my servant, upon whom I have, uh, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will show judgment unto the Gentiles. He shall not strive, nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, a smoking flax shall he not quench, until he send forth his judgment into victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. But all this rests at a point. It rests at a point, I will put my spirit upon him. He's the second person of the Trinity, but he comes as a true man. And the Holy Spirit is put upon him. And then all these other things flow as uh, effects from the cause, from that point on. In 1228, 1228, I'm still in Matthew, but if I cast out demons, it's not devils, in the, uh, in the original, there's only one devil ever mentioned, it's singular. Uh, where you have plural, it's demons, it's a different word. I will cast out demons by the Spirit of God. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Now this is an amazing statement from Jesus, because here he is, and he is speaking, and he's saying, how do I cast out the demons? And, of course, much of the New Testament emphasis, uh, much of the, there's much of this in the, in the Gospels. How do I cast out the demons? And then let's ask a question. How did Jesus cast out the demons? And Jesus says very plainly, it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit being upon him. In Mark, going on to Mark, now remember I said I, I'm approaching this not logically, but only starting at the beginning of Matthew and running through the uh, New Testament. In Mark 1, verses 10 uh, and 12, And straightway cometh out of the water, he saw the heavens open, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. Of course, this is the baptism again. Uh, and the 12th verse, And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. There is a, a slight additional emphasis here and that is not only the Holy Spirit led him but you have the sense of, of an immediateness there is more the sense of, of the possible leading as it were Jesus doesn't lead him but he immediately yes and now in coming to the book of Luke in Luke 1.35 Luke 1.35 and I'll would repeat again, remembering I just started at the beginning of Matthew and going through Mark and then Luke rather than arranging them logically. Luke, Luke one thirty five. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing that shall be called to thee uh, shall be born to thee shall be called the Son of God. Here's the same emphasis we found in Matthew uh, to Joseph, and that is that the conception, uh, the the conception was by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit uh, who brought this to pass. And then in 3:22, Luke 3:22. And the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him. This is the baptism again, of course. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son. 
In thee I am well pleased. In thee I am well pleased. So here uh, you have the baptism again and with the words, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. Then the fourth chapter and the first verse. And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. Now you see that, therefore, the Westminster Longer Catechism is exactly right when it speaks of the fullness. It speaks without measure, because it says Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost. And uh, it says, being full of the Holy Ghost, he was led of the Spirit uh, into the wilderness to be, be was tempted there uh, of the devil. So there's, he was led. There's a note in one of the Gospels, immediately led, the sense of more force in a way. Here the emphasis, he not only uh, had the Holy Spirit come upon him, he was filled with the Spirit as he was led. And then in 4.14, in 4.14, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit uh, into Galilee. So it isn't meant whatsoever uh, to be that this leading of the Holy Spirit in 4, 1, and 2 was only for this one moment when he was led out to be tempted. It isn't that. But he, we are, he's pictured here as not only being led out, but coming back in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. So his whole ministry is now framed in this. He is baptized by the Holy Spirit. He is led of the Holy Spirit. He returns in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And then 4, 18 and 19, it just continues. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Here we would note the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. 4, uh, 18 through 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the broken hearted uh, and so forth. All this flows again from the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is what he's done. Because he's anointed me. How has he anointed me? He has anointed me, you see, with the coming of the Holy Spirit upon him. So the third person is upon him, and then as, as a cause flows out the effect, as I use this, as I spoke before. Anointeth me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and, re and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. All this is related to the fact that he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. The 32nd verse, uh, where it says, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. But notice how this relates to the 14th verse. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. So, how? what's this all this? Here is Jesus the man, anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And as such, these things uh, are accomplished. Now, in um, unless I lost my place, in uh, ten, Luke ten, twenty-one, Luke ten, twenty-one. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, and. Um, and translated here by the Spirit is a better translation. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced by the Spirit. Incidentally, you mustn't ever be put off 
you must realize that the capitals, just as the verse divisions and the chapter divisions were put in later, so the capitalizations were all put in later. Because in the original Greek, all the letters were capitals. And consequently, you couldn't... Uh, the capitals have been added. So you can't, just because it's small s here, this is just with someone's thought. It doesn't mean that um, the other interpretation isn't the one that has the force. It does. And in that hour, Jesus rejoiced by the Holy Spirit and said, I thank thee, Father. So here we have a note that his rejoicing, his rejoicing is by the Spirit. His rejoicing is by the Spirit. Then we come to the Gospel of John, the most striking one of it all is the Gospel of John, where we hear John the Baptist speaking, John 1, 32 and 33. This is, if we were beginning logically, this, were, this is the place we would have begun. John 1, 32 and 33. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him, and I knew him not. But he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. It is a very, very, very central and striking verse. That John the Baptist bears testimony that he saw the Holy Spirit come upon John, uh, Christ and the thing he knew from God was that the one he saw receive the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit remain upon him would be the one who would do what? Who would later baptize by the Spirit. You remember Matthew 3.11 ties into this. The one who was baptized by the Spirit and the Holy Spirit remained upon him uh, would be the one who would, be, who would later baptize by the Spirit. In John 3.34... John 3:34 For he whom God has sent forth uh, has sent speaketh the words of God for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him You notice we've seen that he was full of the Holy Spirit here uh, you have exactly the words that they use in the catechism uh, without measure you see God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him He had the total fullness of the spirit When we come to Acts uh the book of Acts, the first chapter, and the second verse. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Uh, there's no reason to think this should be limited to merely uh, the time after the resurrection. But it's certainly, the amazing thing is that it speaks of this even in the time after the resurrection, but it would seem to be the whole period of his ministry, that he gave the, his commandments that he gave also through the Spirit. Now, if this was a sermon, we'd run back over it and reiterate it. Uh, his being led, uh, the power and the Holy Spirit, casting out demons by the Holy Spirit, so rejoicing by the Spirit, and here he's giving commandments by the Spirit. In Acts 10.38, in Acts 10.38, How God hath anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. Here we find uh, Peter looking backward to the ministry of Jesus and pointing out this, 
So we, we now see that the church put its, the early church, the earliest church put its emphasis at this point too. God hath anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. <clears throat> and then he went out and did good. In Acts 10.38, that's what we just read, isn't it? In Romans 1.4, Romans 1 4 and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness and there's no reason to think otherwise than that this word these words the Spirit of holiness is the same person as the Holy Spirit there's no reason why these shouldn't be brought together here. He is declared to be the Son of God with power. The thing which exhibits the fact that Jesus was truly the Son of God is the power exhibited, and as such, he did this uh, according to the Holy Spirit. It's amazing bringing these things to, two things together again. Then in 1 Timothy 3.16... Now, you notice where we are now. We're now in the Pauline epistles. So we have looked at the Gospels, the book of Acts. We have heard Peter speak. Now we're in the Pauline epistles. 1 Timothy uh, 3.16 And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. We've looked at this before, you see, as an emphasis on the fact of the bringing the two together. He was truly God, but he was manifested in the flesh. But notice the next phrase now, justified in the Spirit. Justified in the Spirit. Without going into a long study of what is involved here, nevertheless the thrust is certainly clearly in this Pauline passage in the same direction as we have found in the Gospels and in Peter's speech. The very Here is Christ and he's eternal God. He was manifested in the flesh and then here we have it brought into contact with the work of the Spirit. In 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ hath once, and this is this wonderful word, once for all in the Greek. The Greek means nothing else except once for all the historic space-time death of Christ once for all, once and finished. For Christ hath also once for all suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. It's the same thing again. Being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. you notice the no doubt left here as to the whole thrust of the thing in the mind of the interpreters with the, or with the translators with the capital S here for spirit. It's always accepted as the Holy Spirit, I think. And then Hebrews 2, 11, getting toward the end of this now. Hebrews 2, 11.
for both he that sanctifieth and they that are sanctified are all of one. For this cause he is not ashamed to call, to call them brethren. The Holy Spirit is not named here. But it would seem that the thing which identifies us uh, with him is the fact indeed that uh, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, that he baptized us by the Spirit. And in 9.14, Hebrews 9.14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And this, of course, is a very fine one to end with. So totally complete. How much more shall the blood of Christ the blood of Christ, here's his sacrificial work, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, without spot to God, without fault. How is this all accomplished? How is it that he so was? And this verse, the writer of the book of Hebrews would say, uh, the answer to this is not his deity, but the work of the Holy Spirit upon him. Now, you remember in Acts 1, Acts 1, uh, the promise of John the Baptist was fulfilled, that he who was baptized by the Spirit would baptize with the Spirit. And we hear Jesus, after his resurrection, immediately before his ascension, saying in Acts 1, 5, for John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And in 1.8, uh, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses. The concept, then ye shall be witnesses. When? After you receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, then ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So, now, the... The first thing, of course, would be to think, as I've pointed out, of the wonder of the fact that we having, after Christ has died, he's ascended, the Holy Spirit has been sent to us, so we as men, we as men have the same Holy Spirit, if we are Christians, dwelling within us, that had come upon Christ. And uh, this, of course, throws a, throws a door open to us. It's an understanding of something. If if Jesus, the man, the true man, one was truly God, but also truly man, if this is the way he did what he did, and now we have the same Holy Spirit, uh, immediately a, a wide open door is thrown open to us. Of course, there is must be said here, there is a, a difference as well as a similarity, because Jesus always did the will of the Father, and so the Holy Spirit was never grieved, and therefore there is a fullness of power to us, none of us are perfect in this life, and none of us fail to grieve the Holy Spirit. And as we grieve the Holy Spirit and quench the Holy Spirit, to use Paul's terminology, um, the results are different. But it throws something upon us, you see. It is the, by the grace of God and looking to the work of Christ in our present lives to grieve him less, this Holy Spirit, to quench him less, as, so that... Uh, there will be more of the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul speaks. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. These other things might flow uh, through us and from us. And that's 
the most important emphasis of this study, surely, upon the fact of Christ working, anointed of the Holy Spirit. But in tonight's lesson, that isn't the thing that I want to uh, mostly leave with you. It is the sense of the true humanity of Christ here. He is truly God, it is true. But as he becomes truly a man as well, that which we see him doing, led up of the Spirit, casting out the demons, these other things, rejoicing by the Spirit, uh, giving the commandments by the Spirit. What we're watching here is the true man, Jesus Christ, with the third person, the Trinity, upon him. And therefore, what he is doing is, uh, as he is, uh, I think the best thing to do is read from the Catechism again, uh, as he has been anointed of the Holy Spirit without measure, and... Uh, See him here then as a true man doing these things. In a very special, emphasized way. Why was our mediator called Christ? Our mediator was called Christ because he was anointed with the Holy Ghost above measure. And so set apart, having been anointed of the Holy Ghost without measure. And this was what set him apart. And fully furnished with all authority and ability to execute the office of prophet, priest, and came to his church. Now then, what we have looked at so far, we have mentioned in the person of uh, Christ the Mediator, looking back to lectures 3 and 4, is true divinity. Then secondly, we have looked upon the fact that uh, the Bible emphasizes, however, that he was truly man. Truly man after the Incarnation. Truly man after the Incarnation. Now when, so here we see him, truly man, truly God. Yet let's remember that as we look upon him in the Gospels, as men looked upon him and as we read about, as we read about him in the Gospel, they didn't see two persons, they saw one person. This is the next step. Though. They didn't see two persons, they saw one person. But he had two natures. He is one person, but he has two natures. He is truly God and he's truly man. Now this expression of nature, of course, grew up theologically in the church to ward off heresies on one side or the other. But though the words grew up in the creedal statements of the church, there's no doubt about it being scriptural in the light of reading through what we have read of his true humanity and then the emphasis we have seen previously of his true divinity. The word nature, the word nature has come as a theological expression, but the idea isn't merely a theological expression in the sense of merely for man. It's clearly embodied in the scripture itself. Question number 40 of the Longer Catechism. Why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? Uh, do you remember there are three questions, why was it requisite? Number 38, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God? We've read that. 39, why was it requisite that the mediator should be a man? We've read that. Now, number 40, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man. And this in one person, 
that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on by us as the works of the whole person. You remember we put our emphasis saw before in the in, uh, previous question back in 38 of the fact that because Jesus was God, there was the infinity of the value of his work and his substitution. And here the emphasis is the is the, the importance of seeing that there be one person, but with these two natures. Now, in Hebrews 2, in Hebrews 2, uh, many of the verses we've already looked at would bear on something on this, and so we'll not run back over most of these. But this Hebrew passage is worth noticing here again. Hebrews 2... We'll look at 14 and 16. Now, uh, we have already read down through uh, verses 16, 17, and 18. But let's notice Hebrews 2, 14 and 16 here. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, in order that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And the 16th verse, And verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now you notice there's two elements to this. The first element is he didn't become the he that's spoken of when he took upon him the nature. He already was. So you find two elements here. Here is, here is the one who had existed before. And there he is in his divinity, in his, as the second person of the Trinity. But this 14th and 16th verse says, the one who had been there before now took upon him something. And what he took upon him, of course, it says here, uh, was the, uh, he likewise took part of the same. That is, just as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. So he took upon him human nature. The one who was deity forever took upon him the human nature with his strong terminology here, of flesh and blood, flesh and blood. So as I say, uh, and down later in the 16th verse, he took on him the, na uh, the nature of the seed of Abraham, uh, of truly a man. So you have two parts. Uh, he, he has been this, now he takes upon him that. So though the scripture doesn't use the word nature here, the emphasis is clearly uh, scriptural as it, the church has developed under this terminology of, uh, of nature. God becomes man here in order to become our mediator. He was this, now he became this as well. And then Hebrews 13.8, an additional note, which we, wouldn't, we haven't considered before. Hebrews 13.8, 